Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Church, if I've not met you, if you're a guest, I want to welcome you to our service. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. Uh, my name is Aaron. I've got the great pleasure of being the, the pastor here. Uh, one leader amongst many leaders, though, in our church. Uh, I want to give you one more announcement. Um, we've got a special seminar coming up uh, that actually our whole COA network is going to be a part of, and all of the church planting network, the SEND network that we're a part of. Uh, and this seminar is on the abortion and the sanctity of human life. I know there's a lot of controversy and heartache that goes into this topic, and so we want to spend some time as a network thinking through biblically and what does it look like to care for our neighbors and how do we navigate this issue? And so we want to invite you into that time. Uh, it's May the 20th. That's, I think it's a Friday night. If not, excuse me about the day, I forgot. Uh, but May 20th at 6.30, uh, because of uh, the groups that are going to come and be a part, we're going to have it downtown at Tremont Temple. You'll see other congregations like ours uh, that are in our larger church planting network, all a part of that. And want to invite you into that Time. So again, that's May 20, 6.30. And uh, Bland, uh, Pastor Bland will be teaching on this and there'll be a little bit of Q&A and panel. We'll have some discussion groups and uh, we'll navigate all of this together. Um, but anyway, uh, guys, if you are uh, a guest, uh, we've been navigating this book of Esther. Have you guys enjoyed Esther so far? Uh, way different teaching than we've done with Ephesians, right? We take like five words and we spend 45 minutes on it. This we take like five chapters and spend a lot of time on it. Well, today is no different. We're taking three chapters of Esther and we're getting in some really rough waters this week with Esther and Haman and the king and all of that. So if you're a guest, let me just get you caught up really quick. And if you've been a part of this, don't tune out because you're gonna need this as well. Okay, so let me summarize uh, where we are to this point. Uh, The book of Esther it occurs rightly like 500 years right before Jesus hits the scene on earth. Uh, There's an exile that the Israelite people have been carried into and that time period is actually over. So the Israelites are traveling back to Jerusalem, but some of them are being kept back uh, in their lands and that's Esther and Mordecai, they're being kept back. So the story that we're reading in the book of Esther takes place in the capital of the Persian empire in Susa. And there's four main characters that we've seen so far. There is King Ahasuerus. He's a self-centered, unwise, drunken dude. That's the king. The next character is Esther. She's a beautiful woman who's been selected to be queen. She's hiding her ethnic Jewish identity because the Persians hate the Jews. And so she gets known, then she'll be killed. Then there's Mordecai, which is Esther's older cousin, sort of father figure to her because both of her parents were killed. Uh, he saves the day uh, for the king because he overhears an assassination plan set out for the king. Then Mordecai tells Esther, Esther tells the king, those two guys with the assassination plot get in trouble. And then Mordecai's name gets written in history. It's recorded in this book that the king takes. More on that today. And then Haman is the last character. He's this sinister, evil dude in this story. Uh, He hates Jewish people. He hates Mordecai and he's the right-hand man for the king. And so when Mordecai refuses to bow down and worship him in respect, Haman like flies off the handle and he goes into a murderous rage against the Jewish people. So last week we saw that Haman convinced the king 
to issue this edict for the entire empire, which is essentially like the whole known world at that time. And this edict is that on one certain day of the year, all the Jews would be killed. Then he rolls a dice called the Pur to help him choose this date of when this killing day will happen. And he finds out it's 11 months from now. When Mordecai hears about this death decree, he's shook, right? He goes to Esther and he says, hey, Esther, is there anything you can do to stop this? Because you're the queen. Can you talk to the king? Will you help your fellow Jewish people? And she's like, absolutely not. Do you know what it costs to go before the king when he doesn't invite you? It's death. There's no way I'm going. And so then Mordecai gives us that big statement we all love if you know this book. Mordecai gives this big faith speech. He says, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, they're gonna rise from another place. God's faithful to his promises to bring a Messiah. So if you don't do it, he's gonna do it. But Esther, listen, who knows? Maybe God had brought you to the kingdom for such a time as this. That hits Esther. I imagine the Holy Spirit take those words and impresses it on her heart. She takes a few moments to consider the words and then she responds by calling a three-day fast in the entire kingdom. She invites some of the women in the castle that help take care of her, seven them, and she calls a three-day fast to boldly pray for God's help. And then she'll go to the king and ask on her people's behalf for rescue. And she concludes with saying, I will go to the king. Though it's against the law, I'll go. And if I perish, I perish. And that's where we were left off last week. Now, as we continue today's story, and we're gonna see next week and we've seen the past weeks, I want you to continue looking for a few things. Let me put them on the screen for you. A few things I want you to look for today, guys. Number one, again, although God's name is not mentioned in this entire book, his fingerprints are. Guys, he's behind every scene, pulling the strings of circumstances and events and relationships, right? To work out his sovereign plan. So look for him behind the scenes. Number two, not only... Are there fingerprints of God all over this story? But there are foreshadowings of Jesus. There's things that remind us of this future Jesus that would come. For example, much like Esther, Jesus took on the position of a mediator and he entered the throne room of God in heaven to plead for those who had a death sentence on them, which was us. Jesus stood in our place so we could live. So I want you to listen out for more of those. You're gonna hear lots of foreshadowings today, pointing us to Jesus. Now guys, as we jump in today's story today, uh, I want you to notice something. Guys, the first half of this story, right? Chapters one through four, it takes place over nine years, right? We talked about this last week. Nine years from chapters one through four, from the third year of the king to the 12th year of the king. But now the story slows down incredibly. The next three chapters all occur in a two-day period, which is very reminiscent, by the way, of the Gospels. The first half of the Gospels cover a three-year span of Jesus' teaching. Then the second half of the Gospels slow down and focus on the last week of his life. And every time we see in Scripture, it slows down. It's to show us that what happens next is incredibly important for our life and faith. So with that said, let's begin Esther chapter five, starting in verse one. On the third day, which again was the period of time of Esther's prayer and fasting, it was three days. On that day, Esther picked herself up and she absolutely dolled herself up. 
She put on royal robes and she stood waiting in the inner court of the king's palace, right in front of the king's quarters, right when the king was sitting on his royal throne, right there in the throne room. So guys, do you feel the scene, right? Esther's being strategic. She's positioning herself to be at the right place, at the right time, wearing the right things that the king will be drawn attention to. She's not being immodest, but she's just presenting herself in a way that can get that king's attention. She posted herself up right in front of the king's quarters so he could see her while he sat at his throne. And so you better believe she's looking her best. She's trying to draw the king's attention her way so that he would invite her to come in and speak to her so that she could ask her big question about saving her people. Verse two, and when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, aka the plan worked. King saw her, she gets to go in, her beauty catches his eye yet again. And so the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. This golden scepter, guys, was like a a royal invitation. It was a sign from the king that if it was extended to you, then you could approach him. If you were near him and he didn't extend that, then you would be killed. So this is a really big moment that he held out the golden scepter from Esther. So Esther did. She approached the king and she touched the end, the tip of the golden scepter, which was him saying, you can speak now. So guys, this is a really big deal. This is what she prayed about for three days. She's fasted about, God, would you give me this moment? Guys, can I just let you know that prayer works? Prayer, fasting, going before God is effective. Maybe not in your time frame that you want it in, but no prayer is ever wasted. And Esther prays and brings people into prayer and God uses those prayers for his glory. So this is a big deal because the king's law says, again, if you approach the king uninvited, you will be killed if he does not extend the golden scepter of acceptance. And praise God that the king did this for Esther. Verse three, so the king said to her, so what is it, Queen Esther? Like, what's your request? It shall be given to you even up to half of my kingdom. So the king's in a really good mood. He's like, whatever you want, I'm gonna give it to you, girl. Up to half of my kingdom, you get 50, I get 50. I'm feeling really good today. So she's really sort of excited about this in this moment, but I'm sure she's a little nervous. Guys, right here in this moment, you can see that God is actually moving in the heart of the king to consider her request. Guys, you're seeing Proverbs 21 verse one live in action. Do you know what that verse says? It says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of God. And he, he steers it, he turns it wherever he wills. That's what God's doing in this moment. Is the king still using his autonomy, his own free will to make his choices? Yes. But who's behind the scenes working in the king's mind and heart to accept Esther, to allow her to come before him when she was not called after? God is using the king in such a way that God is moving the king's heart to accomplish his will. Verse four, Esther says, well, actually, king, since you asked me, I do have a request. If it pleases the king, would you, and would you bring Haman, would you come with me today to a feast that I've prepared for you? Now, if you know the story, this is not an odd request, but if you're like, her people are gonna die, uh, they're all gonna be murdered on a certain day, and she's like wanting to take a feast, seems pretty odd if you're not familiar with this story. Her people are gonna die, right? 
Well, what's she doing? She's being wise. She's being strategic here. She feels like she can't just roll up to the king and ask the king to reverse the curse for her. She's being strategic. She's trying to butter up the king. If you've ever been like a child, which all of you have, you've buttered up your parents before. Oh, mom, how I love you. Can I get a PS5? Can I get a, you know, can I go to this thing, concert with my friends? What, you've buttered up someone. That's exactly what Esther is doing. She's being strategic here. She knows the way of the king's heart is through his gut. Give the man food, give him some alcohol, and she can get this decision made, so she thinks, right? Verse five, then the king said, hey, king, uh, he's saying, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king gets Haman and they come to the feast that Esther has prepared, verse six. And as they're drinking wine after the feast, the king said again to Esther, hey, Esther, what's your wish? Like, what's the real reason that you came here? And so he says, tell me, and I'll grant it to you. Like, for real, what's your request? He says again, even to half of the kingdom, it should be fulfilled. All right, now, guys, here's the big moment, okay? The big request that Esther has for the king is going to happen. The moment that she'll either be received with her request or she'll be killed. A scary moment for her, for sure. So what she do? Verse seven, then Esther answered, my wish and my request is this. If I found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fill my request, let the king and Haman come to another feast that I will prepare for you both tomorrow. Like, Esther, what are you doing here, girl? Like, the, the, the plan's crashing down. Like, you're stalling. What's happening? I don't know if she's getting afraid, guys, if she's getting worried. Another feast? Is she stalling? Maybe. Is she strategizing? Probably. Is she nervous? Absolutely. This is a scary moment for Esther. Verse 9. So Haman leaves after the feast that day. He's joyful and he's glad in heart. He's like, man, I've been invited to the, a feast with the king and his wife. I'm on top of the world. But then Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate. And you know how he feels about Mordecai, right? Mordecai neither rose nor trembled nor batted an eye at Haman. And that filled Haman with like this fury and wrath against Mordecai. Obviously, Haman is still angry about Mordecai not bowing down to him in this all-like worship. So as Haman walks on to his house, he's puffed up, his wounded ego hurts. And so he's feeling rage towards Mordecai and he wants to kill him again and all the Jews. Verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. And to deal with this anger he had, he calls for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions in which the king had honored him with and how he advanced him above all the officials and all the servants of the land. So what's Haman doing? He's basically soothing his anger by recounting how much power and possessions and promise he has more than Mordecai. Like, have you guys ever been in that friend group and there's like a little tiff between one friend and another friend and they just start telling you how much better they are than the other friend and you yeah, I see the smiles out there. Yeah, like so we've done that. We've heard that. That's exactly what he's doing. And that never really calms the anger, right? To tell other people just how much better you are than them. That's what he's doing. Doesn't help him. And so here's what happens. Verse 12, Haman continues his bragging session by saying, even Esther, let no one but me come with the king to this feast that she prepared. And tomorrow I'm even invited to another feast together just with the king, just us. Yet all this is worth like nothing to me. He like turns around and gets angry again. This is not worth anything to me, he says, as long as I see that stupid Mordecai sitting in that temple, uh, still alive at the gate, I want him dead. It's basically what he's saying. He goes on again, talking about Mordecai. He cannot stand this guy. 
verse 14. Then his wife, Juresh, and all his friends give Haman a terrible, sinful, jacked up revenge idea. By the way, if you're looking to get married, marry someone that gives wise counsel, that loves truth and grace. Haman did not pick a good spouse. The spouse did not pick a good Haman. This is a bad couple together. Okay, here's what happens. So they say to him, hey, I got this idea for deal with Mordecai. Let a gallows of 50 cubit feet high, that's where you hang someone. Let a gallows be built, 50 cubits high, that's six stories in the air. Let it be made. And then in the morning, let's go to the king and tell him that we got to hang Mordecai on it. And he's going to listen to you because you're like second in command. Then go joyfully and then eat with the king, drink your wine, and then calm down. And Haman's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's kill the dude. And his wife's like, yeah, kill him. All the friends are like, let's kill him. And that's how they spend their Friday night, planning murder. If those are your friends, get new friends, right? This is terrible advice. Again, just a freebie for you guys. Let's make sure that you, uh, you can be friends with who you want to, but your close counsel of friends, make sure they're not like this, okay? Good counsel leads to good decisions, leads to good outcomes. Bad counsel leads to bad decisions, leads to bad outcomes. Pick your friends wisely who gets to be the inner chamber of good counsel. That's just a freebie for you. Hopefully you know that by now. Chapter six, verse one. Now watch what God does behind the scenes because it looks scary right now, right? Mordecai is gonna get killed. What you think? Everyone's against him. Esther's stalling. She's doing feast number two. She's running out of supplies. What am I gonna do? I'm tired of cooking. This looks like it's just a chaos thing, right? And again, what have we talked about in this series? When things look most chaotic for you, they me me very much so in the control and hand of God. When things are out of control for you, they're very much in control of God. So even if you're struggling with a decision, you're stalling, you were late, you didn't turn in something on time, you missed that opportunity, not in God's hands. Nothing is missed or over. You can't ruin your own life plan if you're in Christ because he guides it, he steers it. And so we're gonna see something happen here in chapter six. Here's verse one. So on that very night, the night that Haman and his girl and his buddies are all plotting Mordecai's death, what's God doing? God's plotting to save Mordecai's life. On that very night, the king just so happened, check this out, guys, the king just so happened to not be able to sleep. Interesting. Why that night? So the king gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles to be read before him. So like if you have, uh, this is like the modern day, let me just turn on a Netflix episode to help me sleep at night. That's what this is. Let me just watch one more episode. Let me just scroll for like two more minutes and I'm gonna go to sleep. That's what this is. Kind of a modern day, just, just another minute or two. So awkwardly, an adult brings in his other adults to read him a night-night story. <laughs> is what he does. So he's like, read me that book of Chronicles. That's super boring. Read that to me. It's like reading Leviticus and then you'll fall asleep, right? It's kind of what he's doing here, right? So verse two, it says, and it was found written in that book that the king's service were, were reading to him how Mordecai had uncovered the assassination plot of Bigthin and Teresh, who had sought to lay hands on the king. And the king, because he couldn't sleep, says in verse three, wait, 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 wait a second. What honor happened for this guy? This joker saved my life. I could have been murdered here. And what honor or distinction had been given to, to Mordecai for this heroic act? And the king's young men look around at each other. They're kind of astounded. They're like, nothing. No one did anything for this guy. Not yet, at least. Just pause there. Don't want to get too far into application. 
But if you ever felt overseen, not chosen, someone else got promoted, someone else got something, do you realize that either God's delay or God's no could still be the route in which he wanted to bring his glory about? Does that make sense? Mordecai didn't get what was due to him. He didn't get the promotion. No one saw the, the things he did behind the scenes. But maybe it was because of that delay or because of that rejection that God was setting up his plan. So friends, I want you to see that. Someone's passing over you, a boss, a friend, employee. It's not going your way. No one sees how you care for that child behind the scenes or how you serve our church or someone else. And you feel like you're just not being honored for it. Maybe God's delaying something to set something up better for you. So take God's best and not what you think is best. Amen? Make sense? So here's what happens. Verse four. Just then, as they're having this conversation about Mordecai not getting what he deserves and the king's in his pajamas and he's getting his nighttime story, all of a sudden what happens? Verse four. The king hears a door open up in the distance in his courts. And so he calls out, hey, who's in the court? I heard that. And it was Haman. Haman just so happened in the same moment entered the king's outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged. Now, pause, pause. What happened? Haman's plan was to wait till morning, right? But his rage was so much, he had to do it right then and right there. Interesting how God can even use something so evil like Mordecai's death wish in order to bring something into God's plan. This is very interesting. So what happens? Verse five, and the king, oh wait, let me make sure I'm in the right place here. Yeah, verse five. And the king's young men told him, hey, king, the guy who just walked in, it's Haman. He's over there. He's standing in the court. And the king said, hey, come on, let's bring him in. Let's figure out why he's here. Now guys, this is the big moment. Esther had her moment. And now this is Haman's moment to bring this death request before the king. And so this could be the very last moment for Mordecai, verse six. So Haman came in and he says to the king, or sorry, uh, sorry, Haman came in and the king said to Haman, the king says, what should be done to this man whom the king delights to honor? And so Haman whispers himself, he's like, sweet. I just came in to try to get a guy killed and now I'm gonna get honored. He thinks, he's talk he thinks the king's talking about him. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me, he thinks. He's gotta be talking about me. His arrogance is gonna get the best of him in this moment. And I love how ironic this story is, okay? Verse seven. So Haman said to the king, hey bro, if you're talking about me, for the man whom the king delights to honor, he just goes on this speech. Let the royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. He's like going super eccentric. Let bring the horse that the king's bottom has ridden on and bring the crown which sets on the king's head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most normal, most noble officials. Let them dress this man with the king's delights to honor and then lead him out on the horse to the square, to the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I'm sure he bows at the very end of this. I love this. Haman thinks the king is talking about him. So he goes on this massive description of what the king gives them. Hey, king, hey, you should give this man some royal robes and give him a horse, give him a crown. Send him out on a ceremony. Tell everyone how great he is. And then comes the turn of events, verse 10. The king said to Haman, huh, yeah, I like that. Hurry up. Take the robes like you said. Yeah, yeah, Haman, Haman's thinking. Yeah, yeah, take that horse. Yeah, yeah, Take all the stuff you said. Yeah, and do it for Mordecai. Bro, you could imagine the rage in Haman's heart. He's like, yeah, hurry up, take that stuff, do all this for Mordecai, the Jew, and just stabs him in the heart because he hates Jews. 
stabs him in the heart with this, right? Who sits at the king's gate. And by the way, leave out nothing that you had mentioned. Bro, alternate, like, ultimate, uh, um, uh, awkward situation for Haman, hey, ultimate like reversal of events here. I, I love this moment, how ironic it is. Verse 11, so Haman, hey, totally deflated, I'm sure, takes those robes. He's like scuffing his foot in the dirt. He's angry about this. He takes the horse. He dresses Mordecai and Mordecai is probably just smiling at him and Haman wants to kill him. And then Haman has to lead him through the square of the city and he has to proclaim, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And that's what Haman's job is to do. Guys, can you imagine how mad this made Haman feel? Verse 12, then Mordecai returned after his victory lap came back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house. He was mourning and crying and covering his head. All poor little Haman, right? Not really because the dude's a jerk, verse 13. And Haman told his wife, Jeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. And his wise men, not so wise men, and his wife, Jeresh, told him, if Mordecai, this is interesting, listen to his words here. If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, hey, you're not gonna be able to overcome him, but you'll surely fall before him. Now, wow, this is wild. God starts to prophesy through the murder friends. Is that crazy to you guys? They're like, oh, snap. I know, I know Mordecai's God. I didn't know he was a Jew. Haman, you left that detail out a little bit for us here. And so, Haman, if you're gonna fall down before this guy, we're gonna back up a little bit from that plan and act like I wasn't a part of that. Because if you're about to fall before him, you're not gonna overcome him because I've, I've heard about Mordecai's God. This is wild. Pagan people prophesying about God. <laughs> this story is great, okay? Now this moment, I think, was probably God's gracious moment to give Haman a moment to repent. This is what I think. Pagan prophecy, he hears it, so, oh snap, it's not gonna go well for me. I think this is God's moment to allow Haman to repent. And of course he doesn't repent. He doesn't turn from his sin here. Verse 14, so while they're still talking with Haman, giving this awkward prophecy moment, the king's eunuchs arrived and they hurried Haman to off the next to the second feast that Esther had prepared. Chapter seven, verse one. So the king and Haman, they go to feast number two with Queen Esther. And on this second day, as they were drinking wine with the feast, the king again said to Esther, He's like, hey, girl, listen, I am super hammered and I have so much in my belly. There is like no more that I can have from this feast. Okay, I know it doesn't say that in the text, but you can imagine how lavish these parties were. She's buttering them up. He's like, hey, sweetheart, can you please, just what's your wish here? I know you're after something else. I'm gonna grant it to you. Finally, just tell me what's your request. I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. Just tell me. So this is the big moment, right? This is the big ask. You can imagine she's nervous. Maybe her hands are sweaty. Her voice is shaky. Verse three, then Queen answered, Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted for me as my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Verse five, then King said to Esther, hold, hold, hold on a second, what did you just say? Who is this person? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? Now you can imagine how awkward this moment is because the only other person in the room is, hey man. And dude's just sitting there snacking on a chicken leg 
and realized this thing's about to reverse and go crazy on him. The king gets furious. He asked, who's this man? What's this about? What has he dared to do? And he is like freaking out. And and Esther even pushes further in verse six and says, the man who did this, this is a foe and he's an enemy to us. This wicked man is Haman. And she like points him out and it goes sideways from here. Haman's terrified before the king and the queen. Verse seven, the king arises in his wrath from his wine drinking. He goes out to the palace garden. He's got to cool down for a second. He's got thinking, how do I handle this situation? But Haman stays back and he's got to stay and beg for Queen Esther to not kill him. Of course, he's begging for his life. Things are not looking for good for him. And in fact, the scene starts looking a little bit worse here in a second. Verse eight, the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just in time to see Haman falling on the couch where Esther was. You guys know what I'm talking about? Getting sideways here. This is not looking good. Haman, as he's begging and pleading as close as he is to her, falls on top of Esther and they both fall on top of the couch. Guys, remember that phrase that we hear on TV? Hey, it's not, it's not what it looks like. That's the origin moment for that, for that phrase. It's really awkward, but the king doesn't care. He does not care what it looks like. He's enraged. He's like, I didn't know what to do about the situation beforehand, but you're like on top of my wife in my kingdom. Now I know what to do to you. Verse nine, the king says, will Haman even assault the queen in my presence in my house? Woo, it's getting hot right here. And the word left the mouth of the king. When that happened, the guards covered Haman's face. Then one of the eunuchs in attendance said, hey, there's some gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. It's standing at Haman's house. It's six stories high. And the king said, hang Haman on that. Verse 10, they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king subsided or abated. Wow. Hey, that's a lot because that's three chapters of scripture. If you haven't had your quiet time this past week, you're welcome. That was it. What a turn of events. And guys, you got to soak that in for a moment. Do you see the hidden hand of God behind the scenes. Did you see it? You didn't hear his name, but did you see God working in so many circumstances, so many situations, even the worst dire situation? God was behind the scenes. Guys, here's a couple take-home points that we see from today. Number one, God is always working. God is always working behind the scenes. This is the point every week we're gonna bring up. Every week, God is always working behind the scenes for your good and his glory. Do you see his fingerprints, guys, in this story? Have you seen it yet? Though God has not mentioned, Esther just happened to become queen out of thousands of women. Mordecai just so happened to overhear the plot of assassination against the king. Then Haman just so happened to erect this massive six-story high gallows. The king just so happened to have a sleepless night The king's servants just so happened to read the story of Mordecai in these books. Haman just so happened to walk in at that moment. Guys, all of these just so happened moments are God's just so happened plans. That's how he works. The just so happens, the the coincidences are the plans. All of them. There is no unseen, uncontrolled moment in your life that God is not sovereign over the good ones and the bad ones. 
And God's using all of those things to work out a redemptive plan for humanity. The good of you, the good of others. So even when it's painful or hurting, that setback might be a setup in God's hands. And we can trust him here. So friends, listen, we say this week after week and I say it again because I want your hearts to know this because you're either going to go into hardship, you're in the midst of it now, or you're just coming out of it. This life with sin and brokenness, you never get out of hardship. That's what glory, that's what heaven is for. That might seem doomsday for you, but I want you to see when you can't see God's hands in your life, you're like, what are you doing? Why am I like this? Why is this happening to me? When you can't see God's hands in your life, you have to trust God's heart towards you. You gotta trust his character. You gotta trust his heart. You gotta trust the past. How he's acted in history is how he acts in the present. He seeks to love and care and guide even in the hard. He's using every circumstance and every setback as a setup to bring good plans and his glory to you. God is always working behind the scenes. So friends, what do you do? You trust the timing, even when it hurts, even when it doesn't make sense, even when why would you do this, God? It doesn't connect with your character. Why would you do this? You trust the timing and you wait. Esther waited for a long period of her life from year three of the king's reign all the way to year 12. She's waiting and hoping, God, am I going to be stuck like this? Are my people going to die? Is there a Messiah going to come through? And God was using those nine years to set up plans behind the scenes. Guys, God is always active. It may not be in your timing, but you may need to trust his timing. And as a church, we're to care for each other in the gaps. When you're waiting, when you're hurting, when you're not understanding, we want to hold and help and care for you in that season. But you can trust that when you can't see God's hand in your life, you can trust his heart that he is at work. Number two, second thing I want you to see, God will always, this is a hard one for us sometimes, God will always bring about justice in the face of evil. This is hard because it doesn't feel like that's the case, right? How often do we see these cases where unjust things are happening and people are going to jail when they were innocent? It seems that evil always gets the upper hand. You guys read Proverbs or looked at the Psalms. It always seems like evil is winning. And always at the end of those scriptures, you always see this God of vengeance or this God of justice coming through and tipping the scale and bringing justice where no one thought it was possible. So listen, friend, I want to share this with you. Whether there's evil happening in your life, there's certainly evil happening around us. God will always bring about justice in the face of that evil. He'll either do it on an earthly way or an eternal way. You'll either taste that justice from God on earth or you'll ultimately see it in eternity. There's not one person that will get away with evil. Either God punishes that evil through Christ on the cross or that person gets punished for that injustice. So yes, we work with governments. Yes, we work with officials. Yes, we make sure we want legislation, education to be in place to bring about justice. Absolutely. But we trust that God is the ultimate one to bring it. He'll either bring it in an earthly way or an eternal way. And so we can trust this. 
So friends, if you feel anger in your heart towards a person or a people group and you wanna retaliate against your kid or your spouse or someone in our church or someone at your job and you feel that anger rising up because you were mistreated, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 for you. Let no one transgress his brother or sister because the Lord is the avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Do you know what that means? means the evil that's happened to you, God is the one that will bring about justice. The Bible also talks about, yes, that's why God gives governments and he gives officials to bring about that justice. And we are to pursue that justice. The Bible also tells us that. But even when government officials fail and we don't pursue justice, God will bring that to flourishing. So if you were mistreated in your life and your pastor, it's your job, God tells us that he's the avenger. He will work. That person will not get off scot-free. God will step in and make something happen to vindicate you, to care for you in that. And as Christians, we want that punishment to only be paid for in Christ. And God is willing to do that for anyone that has sinned, anyone that's fallen short, anyone that's been the villain in the story. God seeks to take that punishment through Christ. And that's why God gave Haman that moment to repent because Haman did not repent. God gave justice, not through Christ because Haman didn't want it. God gave the justice to Haman. Does that make sense? God will bring justice in the face of every evil. So you aren't in charge to bring about it in every area perfectly. Yes, we pursue it, but God's in charge of it. He'll bring justice either in an earthly way or an eternal way. And we've got to trust him here. Number three, God calls us to always seek to advance the kingdom of Christ and not the castle of our own comfort. Esther had a choice in this story, didn't she? She had a choice to not stand up on behalf of her people. She could have stayed back in the kingdom and said, hey, wanna just hang out with my friends here? I I, I finally got possessions now because I was an orphan girl and I finally got money and I finally have prestige and yeah, I'm not in the promised land and yeah, I can hang out with Mordecai as much, but I've arrived now. She had every reason or excuse to not stand up for her people. She could have chosen comfort and silence, but what she chose was a kingdom purpose. She chose to, to mediate, to step in the gap and advance the kingdom rather than her own comfort. So church, let me ask you, Where do you feel that you are not like Esther in this story? Where do you feel like comfort wins out over kingdom? What are we choosing day to day that's more about your happiness and your comfort and your peace and your ease than it is about advancing the kingdom? It's a huge question for us to ask because you're either pursuing two things. You're either pursuing God's kingdom or your comfort. And for a Christian, we know that this life is not the only life we have. For a Christian, we pass away and we go on to glory, right? We go on to heaven. So what we can do with this life is exchange comfort for challenge and say, Lord, I'm gonna give you my all. I'm gonna go do hard things. I'm gonna sacrifice. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna go to India for four months and adopt this child. I'm gonna care for my family well. I'm gonna advance the the gospel. I'm gonna plant churches. I'm gonna share the gospel with my neighbors. I'm gonna give sacrificially because you don't live for this life anymore. You live for that one. You, 
You aim for heaven. That's your place of comfort and your ease and your peace. So friends, what happens is like we're building sandcastles that last for a little while. And the, sh- the waters of life come shoring in and hit our castles and it comes apart and then we just build them up again. And that's what we do day after day, just building sandcastles. But what if we just gave that up and said, let's build something that's meaningful. Let's advance God's ways and God's kingdom. Let's stand up for the voiceless. Let's care for those who are not being cared for, the marginalized. Let's care for the weak. Let's care for those in our church, our community that don't know Christ. Let's make everything that we have, give it to the Lord and advance the kingdom. Guys, if Esther didn't do what she did, yes, God would have brought another deliverer. Somehow he would have arranged it, but Esther would have missed out. And friends, the worst place to be is you missing out on what God's trying to design through you. Yes, he can still bring good and yes, he can still bring glory. He's still in charge of your life. But if you're always resisting God's will and God's ways, the road is just so much harder to travel on. There's so much more sin and so much more struggle, so much more distance from him in that way. So friends, would you and I, would we always seek to advance the kingdom and not our own comfort? So church is the last point, not on the screen, because it's the ultimate point. This story points us to Christ. This story is the great reversal. Do you remember the gallows we talked about? The gallows that was set to kill the Jews, to ruin the plan of redemption, actually turned into be the plan of redemption. Do you know what that gallows points us to? It points us to the cross. The cross was set up by Satan to kill the Redeemer, to make the plan go null and void. Satan erected the cross to kill you, to kill me, to kill the faith. But that same trap, that same crucifixion that led to the Lord's death was the same salvation that leads you to life. This story points us forward. Someone else hung on the gallows for you It wasn't the enemy, Satan. It wasn't Haman, it was Christ. Haman deserved the death he got injustice. Christ did not. Then why did he go to the cross? To take your injustice, to take your sin, to take my sin. Do you see how this points to Christ? We're left wanting more in this story, aren't we? The Jews are still aimed to die, right? We've not dealt with that. We just have Haman dead now, but there's still gonna be a day for these Jews that could die, right? You gotta come back next week to get the story or read it in your own time, of course. But we're left wanting more. Why? Because it always points to the one who brings more. It points us to Christ. Christ hung on the cross in our place. Haman could not be a mediator. Esther could not be the ultimate mediator. Mordecai could not be the ultimate mediator. Christ had to come and stand in our place Take our sin, cast it away, bring you righteousness. Esther points forward, Mordecai points forward, the gallows point forward. And in this message, this points you to Christ. Have you yet trusted that he is sovereign over every detail of your life, every plan, every unmet desire? He's sovereign over it and he promises in his time to bring it out for your glory. Do you trust him? Non-Christian friend that have been gathering with us online or in person, have have you yet to see that he's behind the scenes. He cares for you. He knows your life. That before you were born, he set a plan in motion to bring you about 
for you to hear this message, for you to know he loves you, he died for you. He set things in motion. Have you yet trusted in him? Today is his invitation. See him high on the gallows. See him high on the cross where you should have been killed. Christ died in your place to forgive you of every sin. All you must do is simply trust, simply believe. So guest today, non-Christian friend who's exploring Christianity, would you trust in this Jesus who Esther, Mordecai, the gallows point to? Let's pray together.